Good morning, Sun Valley. It's good to see you all today. I'm so thankful that uh, we can be together worshiping our Lord in song and prayer and, and reading and preaching. It's good to be together again around the word with the saints. Thomas Watson, the great Puritan pastor and theologian, once wrote, Satan loves to fish in the troubled waters of a discontented heart. Let me read that again for you. Satan loves to fish in the troubled waters of a discontented heart. Seems like this issue of contentment is pretty important, wouldn't you say? If that is true, if what Watson is saying is true, is that Satan loves to go after people in their discontentment, then how important is it that you and I pursue contentment? Pretty important, I would say. I guess being discontent is a dangerous place to be, if that's where Satan's fishing. Even though we've been spending a few weeks getting through this passage in Philippians 4, verses 10 through 19, which deals with contentment, the issue really isn't just contentment for contentment's sake here in this passage. The Apostle Paul included these 10 verses in Philippians 4 at the end of his letter because discontentment, as much as anything, robs us, robs you, of your joy. And if we are joyless, then there's no, there's no way that we can be joyful gospel partners. That's why this letter was written, was to ensure the joy of God's people. Uh, I don't know if you recognize this or not yet, but usually people aren't excited for things that you're unhappy with. Uh, like your car. I mean, this is what the whole review system is about on Amazon, right? One to five stars tells you whether or not this is a good deal. If the gospel doesn't make you joyful, why buy? If it's a one-star deal, I'm not in. So it's really important that we are joyful gospel partners, right? As we continue through the Christian life. Paul wanted to encourage gospel partnership and warn about the things that would kill your joy in this letter. That's what the letter has been about. So as we have approached the end of this letter here in chapter 4, we've come across these important words in chapter 4, verses 10 through 19, that speak to us of the importance of contentment in the Christian life. Contentment in the Christian life. We've discovered that there are five principles of contentment here. I've already covered three. I'm going to review them for you, and then we'll dive into uh, principles five or four and five. So let's, let's look at these, these principles of contentment, and I'm going to read through Philippians 4, 10 through 19, as I describe these principles. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it to Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 19. We'll be spending our time there today. The first principle that we discovered is found in verse 10. The verse goes like this, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me but had no opportunity. So the, the principle we, we took from that verse was this, a content person is confident in God's providence. How can we get that from that verse? Paul understood and accepted the fact that the Philippians couldn't support him for some reason or another. He was resting in the providence of God, not only in his life in prison, but also in their lives dealing with poverty in Philippi. 
And so God, uh, Paul said, the providence of God has overruled in all these things, and it, evidently they can't supply my needs at the present time. A content person is confident in the providence of God. And by the way, the providence of God covers your whole life from beginning to end. So you must be content from beginning to end with the circumstances in which you find yourself if you're going to be a joyful gospel partner. The second principle that I taught you last week is found in verse 11. It says this, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And the principle, of course, is a content person is satisfied and unsatisfied. Now, satisfied we get from this verse. He's content to be wherever he is, experiencing whatever he is. But he's discontent or unsatisfied if you go back to Philippians chapter 3. You remember in Philippians chapter 3, he said that the world didn't satisfy him. He called the things of the world rubbish. We don't call things rubbish that satisfy us. And so we can see that not only is Paul satisfied in God's providence and his circumstances, but he's also dissatisfied what, number one, the world may offer. And number two, he was dissatisfied, if you remember in verses 10 through 14, of his own passion for Jesus. So the second principle is the content person is satisfied in God's providence, in circumstances, and unsatisfied in what the world's offering and my own passions for Jesus. That was the second principle. The third principle that we covered last week is this. A content person is separate from their circumstances or they live above their circumstances. And I see this in verse 12. Look at verse 12 of Philippians 4. I know how to be brought low and how to abound in in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Paul was living above and outside of his circumstances. They didn't control his joy. He wasn't unhappy because his favorite sports team had lost on Sunday. I know people who go through the whole week in a funk if the Seahawks lose. And so the Seahawks better not lose or this is going to be a bad week, right? I mean, or if the stock market dips. It's going to be a bad day. And on and on it goes. Circumstances really have influence and power over us if we're not careful. And so here the principle is a content person isn't controlled by circumstances. They're separate from them. It's an important principle in the Christian life if you're going to remain a joyful gospel partner. You know, you may wake up with a cold or with a bad financial report or with a loss of a favorite team. Does that really control your joy? That's not the case for those who are content in Christ. And this leads us to that fourth principle, one that we will cover today uh, in depth. Look at verse 13, if you would. And here we find the fourth principle of contentment. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What's the principle? It's this. A content person is strengthened by God. A content person is strengthened by God. This verse, verse 13, is one of the most misinterpreted verses in the Bible. We see this verse in many places, on mirrors, weight room ceilings, in offices, screensavers, and so forth, supposing that God is going to come through and give some supernatural strength that would otherwise be impossible to experience the things we do. So he can, I can do everything through Christ who strengthens me. I can do this, I can do that, I can do the other, because Christ 
evidently, is strengthen me. But let me say something to you as simply as I can. Knowing Jesus doesn't make you a superhero. Knowing Jesus doesn't make you a superhero at all. For example, I would discourage you from jumping out of a plane in hopes of flying. I would discourage you from trying to lift a thousand pounds, at your first effort at least, because you think Christ is strengthening you in the moment. He's going to give you the power to fly or to lift. That isn't what Paul meant in verse 13. Paul was actually referring to holding up under difficult circumstances. That's what verse 13 means. Paul was saying that no matter how dire his circumstances may have been, he could, with God's strength, get through those things. He wasn't suggesting that he could fly if he put his mind to it. Paul was facing death. He was in prison. He was simply saying, I can endure this because of the strength I find in Christ. I think a helpful translation insight is that the word through in verse 13 actually may and possibly should be translated in. It should read like this. I, uh, where is it here, verse 13? I can do all things in him who strengthens me. Might give you a little more clarity on what Paul is actually saying. The point being, Paul's adequacy and strength in any circumstance come from his union with Christ. He finds himself in Jesus. This is important. He had an authentic relationship with Christ that defined and controlled who he was and what he did. He was in Christ. That's why he could survive prison. That's why he could make it through a shipwreck. That's why he could survive on little food. Why? Because he was in Christ. Christ was sustaining him as he deemed best. And Paul was content with that. You remember in Galatians chapter 2, Verse 20, what he said to them concerning these things, Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There was a secret to Paul's strength. There was the secret to Paul's contentment. You remember what Jesus said about the matter in John 15? What did he say? You can do nothing without me, right? A content person isn't content because they have a strong disposition uh, or a stoic nature, a resilient character. That isn't why people are content. They're not content because they have a lot of money. I know a lot of rich people who aren't content. A genuinely content person is so because they rest in an all-sufficient God. They are in Christ. I hope that makes sense to you. This is an important principle. We are strengthened by God, those of us who are joyfully content. Jerry Bridges, the, the author, said, this is the secret of being content, to learn and accept that we live daily by God's unmerited favor in, or unmerited favor given through Christ, and that we can respond to any and every situation by his divine enablement through the Holy Spirit. The contented person experiences the sufficiency of God's provision for his needs and the sufficiency of God's grace for his circumstances. He believes God will indeed meet all his material needs and that he will work in all his circumstances for his good, end quote. So what we see here from the verses in Philippians 4 and from these quotes I've read you, that the critical starting point for any true and lasting contentment is the grace of God in Christ Jesus. That's where your contentment, lifelong contentment, must begin. 
in the grace of God through Christ Jesus. There's no divine contentment without divine grace, in other words. But with divine grace, divine contentment is always nearby. So what this means for us is that anyone to truly experience lasting contentment in this life, the gospel of Jesus Christ must be understood and embraced. If you're lacking contentment, if this is an ongoing battle with you, I would ask you a simple question. Have you embraced Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Do you understand the gospel? Have you bowed the knee to Christ? Have you put all your hope and trust in him? If so, contentment will soon follow. If not, maybe you haven't done that. As long as you think that God's material gifts, like money, sex, food, power, those are the things that will satisfy you. As long as you think that way, you have not yet encountered or embraced Jesus Christ, who is the giver of those gifts. Jeremiah Burroughs, the one who wrote the rare jewel of Christian contentment that I recommend to you. He wrote this, a Christian finds satisfaction in every circumstance by getting strength from another. There's the principle number four. We find our strength in God. Okay, so a Christian finds satisfaction in every circumstance by getting strength from another, by going out of himself to Jesus Christ, by his faith acting upon Christ and bringing the strength of Jesus Christ into his own soul. He is thereby enabled to bear whatever God lays on him by the strength that he finds from Jesus Christ. There is strength in Christ not only to sanctify and save, but strength to support us under all our burdens and afflictions. And Christ expects that when we are under any burden, we should act our, act our faith upon him to draw virtue and strength from him." End quote. The content person is strengthened by God, not by good circumstances, not by a lot of money, not by good health. The content person is strengthened by God. This strength is only available to those who have submitted themselves to the gospel, first of all. That's where it begins, remember. This strength is only available to those who have submitted themselves to God's providence, principle number one. This strength is only available to those who are satisfied in Christ and his provision and unsatisfied by the world, principle two. This, this strength is only given to those who are intent on not living selfishly. They're living for Christ, their strength coming from him. You see, Christ isn't interested in supplying the desires that flow out of idolatry. Can you imagine a parent rewarding their child for doing wrong? We, we wouldn't think of that. Can you then imagine Christ rewarding you for not pursuing the source of joy and fulfillment and contentment? Looking for that outside of him? Of course not. This is what James says in chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? 
Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is of no purpose that Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Friends, God cares that you choose him as your source of joy, your source of contentment, your source of peace, not his gifts. We went over that at length last Sunday, if you remember. We must be in submission to Christ, in love with Christ, and living for Christ if we expect Christ to come through in times of need and give us that contentment we so desperately desire. You see, the gospel states that God is holy and we are sinful. And with our sin nature comes discontentment. That's exactly the sin that caused Adam and Eve to fall. Discontentment. It grew out of this vacuum that they seemed to find in their lives that Satan convinced was because they didn't have enough stuff or didn't know enough things. And so they bit. Many of our struggles with sin can be traced back to this same thing, discontentment. Think about the sins you struggle with in life. Can you trace them back to their root? If you can, many times that's the root of discontentment. The only true satisfying thing in this universe is God. Everything else is created by God to draw us to him. God has designed the things of this world, his material blessing, his goodness, his gifts, not to satisfy us fully, but to take us to the edge and leave us dissatisfied so that the next step is God himself. That's what all these gifts that you and I enjoy are about, drawing us into deep communion and fellowship with our creator. This is what verse 13 is all about. Everything else God has created is simply designed to draw us to God. Our relationship with God is in and through Christ Jesus. He will strengthen. He will sustain. And we must acknowledge our sin and our offensive independence from God as we pursue all these other things and personally embrace Jesus Christ, who he is, what he has done, his life, death, and resurrection. Once the Holy Spirit of God regenerates our hearts, we are drawn to Jesus Christ and sense that he is truly and ultimately satisfying and we come running to him because we realize he is the answer. These other things aren't cutting it. He is the answer. And for all whose hearts have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, we come joyfully and willingly and embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Have you done that? If so contentment is right around the corner. A parallel verse that helps us understand Philippians 4.13 and this fourth principle of contentment is Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. We spent some time on this verse here a while back, and I want to remind you of a few of the things we learned. It is very helpful here to more fully understand this idea of contentment and the strength that we get from God for our contentment. This is what the verse says in Hebrews 13. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You know that verse, you've probably got it memorized. Money, according to the author of Hebrews 13, and what it can buy are seemingly one of the most common areas of discontentment for the Christian. This verse in Hebrews is actually very helpful as we unpack this 
fourth principle from Philippians 4, which is a content person is strengthened by God. Now, so let's dissect this verse in Hebrews 13 together. J.C. Ryle said that Hebrews 13.5 is a golden sentence that that deserves special attention, special notice from every Christian. So let's give it some special attention right now uh, in the next few minutes. Let's let's take special notice of what Hebrews 13.5 says about contentment. First of all, it says this. Don't be content, or rather, what is he, he says, keep your life free of the love of money and be content with what you have. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. So it's a command to be content. Be content with what you have. You know, this isn't difficult to understand. We teach our children this very early. We explain that they need to be content with what they have and stop, you know, begging for more. You see this a lot in grocery stores as you check out, right? But as simple as this concept is, even for children to understand, it's also one of the more difficult things to do, isn't it, even as adults? And I think it's one of the most important teachings in the New Testament. Christian contentment. Contentment has been, or lack of contentment has been an ongoing struggle for humans throughout history, hasn't it? Starting all the way back with Adam and Eve, as I mentioned. Visiting almost every human being ever born, this curse of discontentment torments most of us to one degree or another. Stories of discontentment are sprinkled throughout the scriptures. It seems like most of the characters we read of have struggled with discontentment to one degree or another. These, are, these stories are famous. We are well aware of them. We, we're familiar with all of them. Adam and Eve in the garden, Lot's discontentment uh, led him to separate from, from his uncle Abraham and one better land than Abraham had. Abraham himself was not content to believe God's promises that he would fulfill and satisfy Abraham in the promised land. He didn't believe that, so he ran off to Egypt and got in trouble. Sarah and Rachel were not content with their barrenness and made that quite obvious. Uh, the brothers of Joseph were not content being second place, and so they sold their brother who was in first place into slavery. The people of Israel were not content in Egypt. They weren't content in the desert. This, the book of Exodus uh, is a story of their discontentment. Um, the, their first king, King Saul, was not content with David's popularity. King David was not content with his wife, so he went and got another man's wife. And on and on the stories go throughout Scripture. And then human history continues, and we find ourselves here today struggling with the same thing, discontentment. I'm sure that we all have stories about how discontentment has dogged us in our Christian life. I'm sure you could give two or three examples from your own life, maybe in the past month, how discontentment has caused problems, either in your marriage or at work or in your own heart. I mean, credit card debt is an example of or a symptom of discontentment, right? We, the, 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 the market, the market that we live in is based on you being discontent. <laughs> so you go out and get more stuff. It's, it's a serious enemy, this discontentment, which is why Satan fishes there, Right? The author of Hebrews wrote to be content with what you have, not with what you used to have, like good looks, right? You remember those things? Some of you young people, 
wait a few years. It was interesting. I got, a, I got an email from a soccer player I coached in high school back in the 90s. And he asked me to send him a highlight video of the season back in 1995 when he was a senior. And so I sent it to him. He writes me back within a couple of days, hey, thanks for the video. I, could, I don't remember, but you used to be a good looking guy. And I said, thank you? Is, was that a compliment? So he said, be content with what you have, not with what you used to have, like good looks or even health, right? This doesn't mean, by the way, that you shouldn't work out and be content with being overweight or out of shape. No, we're supposed to be good stewards of our body, right? Eat right, health, be healthy, etc. But we need to understand that aging is part of the program. Be content with that. He said to be content with what you have, not with what you want to have. Also, the author of Hebrews, like bigger homes, nicer cars, more money. Be content with what you have. To be truly content is a matching virtue, isn't it? It's an attractive virtue for the Christian. How much better would our lives be if we could just switch a button, switch a switch, a switch I guess you would say, and be content? Wouldn't that be awesome? I'm going to be content today. <laughs> this is what the Apostle Paul is talking about here in Philippians 4. The second thing I want to point out to you from Philippians 13.5 is this, the basis of our contentment. What is the basis of our contentment according to this verse? Anybody want to take a guess? What does it say? He says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, the basis of our contentment is what God has said. The Bible is a record of what God has said regarding life and godliness, isn't it? Yes. The Bible addresses everything we need to be content. This is the point of Hebrews 13.5. The scriptures are our refuge in times of trouble. In the scriptures we find answers to our questions on how to be content. The Bible contains all the necessary instruction we may need that, if followed, will bring about true and lasting contentment. The basis of our contentment is found in what God has said in this book. When, you remember when Jesus was facing temptation in the wilderness from Satan? Uh, Satan was trying to tempt him by using discontentment, the same thing that worked in the garden he thought would work on the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. And he thought he would get Jesus to be discontent by offering him all this stuff. If you'll just bow to me, I'll give you all this stuff. What was Jesus' answer to those temptations? It is, it's famous. It is written. Right? God has said. Was the first place Jesus went when being tempted with discontent. When Abraham needed direction, he referred to what God had said. When the Apostle Paul needed encouragement, he remembered what God had said. All throughout scriptures, all these discontent people, save Christ, ran to what God had said to be content. My point is this, that the strength of your contentment must rest on what God has said. Do you go there in times of discontentment? You must know what God has said about the different things that you're going to be facing in life. Do you know what the Bible says about those things that cause discontentment in your life? Relationships, possessions, 
self-worth, etc. Do you know where to go in the scriptures? If, if the answer is what God has said, if the basis of contentment is in what God has said, do you know what God has said regarding the matter? If not, I would encourage you to buy a topical Bible. They're really handy, actually, topical Bibles. You can get apps that are topical Bibles. You can get them on Amazon. They're called topical Bibles. And whatever it is that you're th facing or thinking about or studying, it is organized by topic. Relationships, possessions, you know, struggles with this or that or the other thing, all in topical order. And I would encourage you to own one of those for this very reason, because what he has said is the basis of your contentment. The third thing I want to point out to you from Hebrews 13.5 is this. Our strength comes from God, so the faithful presence of an omnipotent God is important. Wouldn't you say? If our strength comes from God, his faithful presence brings contentment. With God comes contentment. I will never leave you, Jesus said. The strength of God comes with the presence of Jesus Christ in your life. If there is anything true about this world is that it is full of leaving, of forsaking, of separation, of disappointment. How awesome is it to know that we have a God who has personally experienced all these things and yet his promise is to us that he will never leave, never forsake, never fail. What a wonderful promise. That's what we need. That's the place of contentment. Every one of us will experience the sorrow of separation from loved ones. Many of you already have. Throughout life, we see this happening. Our kids grow up and move away. Um, some people are sad about that. Others aren't. Right? Our friends get jobs in other places. Our parents get old and die. We get old and die, leaving our spouses, leaving our children. And on and on it goes throughout human history. Life is about leaving, about separating, about sorrow and pain. We all have to endure this separation, this heartache, this loss. Even the closest possible relationship bond there is amongst us, marriage, is predicated upon this one promise, till death do us part. And then death, and we're separated. All right, you're not going to be married to your spouse in heaven on the other side. We'll be separated. But listen, separation is the universal law except between Christ and his people. Think about that. Separation is the universal law except in one place. <laughs> between Christ and his people. Between Christ and his beloved our relationship with Jesus lives on and on and on into death. You remember these famous verses from Romans 8, 38 and 39? For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come, powers, height, depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. What an amazing promise. There is no separation between Christ and his people. Are you his people? Are you in Christ? Have you had your sins forgiven? Are you in a relationship with the God of heaven, your creator, 
in Christ Jesus? If so, that will never end. There will never be separation for us who are in Christ. Let me, let me translate literally Hebrews 13.5, this phrase in Hebrews 13.5. It says in our, in our translations, uh, I will never leave you or forsake you. That's good English. Greek is not good English. It's Greek, all right? So they translate it the way they do. But here is the literal translation of I will never leave you or forsake you. I will never, no, never, ever leave you. That's what it says in the original language. Think about that. Do you think there's some emphasis here? I will never, no, never, ever leave you. He wants to make sure you know he won't leave. <laughs> I will never, no, never, ever leave you. It's like something uh, junior high girlfriend, boyfriend might say to each other. What a tremendous promise. The God who gives all these good gifts to draw us to himself says, I won't leave you ever, no, never. Whenever you feel fear creeping in to try to unsettle your heart, God is there. He will never, no, never leave you. Whenever you sense dis discontent in any form sneaking up on you, God has promised to be the supply of every need. He will never, no, never leave you. A truly content person, friends, is, con is strengthened by God. We must remember these words in Philippians 4.13. We must remember these words in Hebrews 13.5. We must keep them close by during a dark night. The word never is like gold to us, Christian friend. Wrap that word around you as you would wrap a life preserver around your body in storm at sea. When the troubling waves of life are crashing over you, remember the word never. The word never on your deathbed is an important word to remember. The word never as you stand before the judgment seat of God will be an important word to remember. The word never is critical. You won't stand alone before the judge, Christian friend. If you're in Christ, he will be standing next to you, vouching for you. Never, no never will I leave you. The fifth and final principle that we find in Philippians 4, 10 through 19 is seen in verses 14 through 19. And I want you to look for this as I read it. A content person is others-oriented. I want you to see how Paul demonstrates this and how the Philippians demonstrated this. Philippians 4, 14 through 19, a content person is others-oriented. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you, even in Thessalonica. You sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek a gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Do you see the other's orientation in the Philippians? 
Do you see it in Paul? A content person is other-oriented. And this reminds us of what Paul said in chapter 2 of the Philippians letter. Verses 3 through 5. Turn there real quickly. Let me read them for you. Chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. Speaking of others-oriented, Paul says this, Do nothing from rivalry or selfish ambition, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Think and act like Jesus. Consider others before yourself. Be others-oriented. And now here in chapter 4, if you're others-oriented, that is going to result in contentment. This is a clear point made here. If you're not concerned with the interests and needs of those around you, it means that you're interested and preoccupied with your own interests and wants and needs. We call this selfishness, right? Yeah. In order to experience contentment, though, it's fundamental, it's required that we be others-oriented. You must think about others. You must be concerned for others' interests if you're going to be content. It demonstrates contentment. One of the key qualities of of a Christian character is love, right? By this, all men will know you that Jesus said that you love one another. And then Paul defines love in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5. He says, love is what? It does not insist on its own. It's not selfish. It's others-oriented, is what Paul said. Paul affirmed the selflessness of the Philippians here in these verses, verses 14 through 19. Even though they were in, in dire financial condition, they were poverty-stricken people, according to 2 Corinthians, and yet they gave abundantly. They were others-oriented. It's been said that the key to contentment is to be a good giver. Does that describe you? We must hold all things loosely. Why? Because they're gifts from God. They belong to Him, not us. We're simply stewards. What you possess is not your own. The gift that the Philippians gave to Paul was not only good for Paul, it was good for them. Those who give receive great benefit. Have you discovered that yet as a Christian? One of the reasons for giving to God's work is so important in the Christian life is because it blesses those who are giving as well as those who are receiving. I'll read a couple verses here for you uh, that you're familiar with. Proverbs 11, 24 and 25. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. How about what Jesus said in Luke 6? Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, and will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. You're, you're familiar with these things. 2 Corinthians 9, 6. In the context of describing the Philippians, Paul said this. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. It's not in the amount you give. It's in the sacrificial nature of what you give, the joy in what you give. So Paul believed that the generous gift from the Philippians was an act of worship. Is that how you view your giving? An act of worship? You're honoring God by your giving? How much do you honor God by your giving? Well, the, the Philippians' gift, as small as it was, pleased God greatly. You remember the widow's mite? She gave two pennies 
it pleased God greatly. Paul believed that this generous gift from the Philippians was an act of worship. Now listen, Sun Valley Church, let me say this. You have been these kind of givers. You've been Philippian-type givers during this year. During the pandemic even, when one in every five church in America has closed because of what's been going on, Sun Valley Church has had the best financial year we've ever had up to this date. And because of the generosity, the sacrificial, joyful generosity of you folks, we've been able to give a substantial financial gift to each of our missionaries and our affiliates above and beyond what we regularly give them. That's a good sign. That's a good sign of contentment, of joy, of gospel partnership. I commend you. The com content person is others-oriented, others-oriented and desires that others be blessed. Has God blessed you? Then be a blessing to others. Paul demonstrates this when he writes verse 19. Look at it again. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. By the way, that's a bottomless pit. The riches of glory in Christ Jesus. Because he was content. Paul could genuinely desire God's blessing in the lives of his friends. He was others oriented. I know sometimes we struggle with that. Sometimes we aren't overly excited when someone else gets something we want. But the content person who is to review the principles, the content person who is confident in God's providence, satisfied in God's provision and unsatisfied by the world, who is separate from their circumstances, who is strengthened by God, who is others-oriented, is truly happy and joyful, truly content. Thomas Kempis, let me end with this. When a man no longer seeks his comfort from any creature, then he first begins to enjoy God perfectly. And he will be well content with whatever befalls him. Then he will neither rejoice over having much nor grieve over having little, but will commit himself fully and trustfully to God, who is all in all to him. Friends, this is a description of the content person, the joyful gospel partner. Are you content? Can you apply these principles of contentment in your life? I pray that you will. Pray with me now. Lord Jesus, we acknowledge that many times we become discontent as we look around us in this world. Help us not to be pursuing your gifts more than pursuing the giver of those gifts. Help us to be in love with Christ and satisfied completely in him. Father, help us to avoid the, the dangerous waters of discontentment. Protect us from those things. Bless us in Christ Jesus more than we could imagine. Remind us of your love. Help us remember the scriptures. God, help us apply these important truths, these five important principles from Philippians 4 as we pursue joyful contentment as gospel partners. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.